Welcome to The Markets, sponsored by the CME Group. In for Orion Samuelson, I'm delighted to be here again. Steve Alexander, Orion, and Max Armstrong will be along in a few minutes. Susan Schmidt, head of U.S. equities for Aviva Investors in Chicago, will be here as well to explain why the markets did what they did this week. And what they did was go up and down and way up and then way down. On Friday, all three of the major indices dropped as investors considered what a tumble in oil prices might mean for the economy. The dollar extended its gains. Gold dropped after a report showing producer prices rose more than forecast in October. On the S&P 500, the energy sector suffered the most as crude fell deeper into a bear market as it heads for what could be the longest losing streak on record. For the equities, it was still a good week, though. The S&P 500 ended 2.8% higher, the Dow rose 2.1% for the week, and the Nasdaq gave back the most on Friday, but still it finished in the blue, or green, for the week by 7 tenths of a percent. Crude oil, as I mentioned, had a tenth losing session in a row on Friday, futures sinking deeper into that bear market territory, wiping out the gains for the year. The 10-day decline is the longest losing streak for U.S. crude since mid-1984. The West Texas tea futures settled 48 cents lower at $60.19 on Friday. The contract is now down nearly a half percent this year. At one point, it got down to $59.26, the weakest level in about nine months. It is a stunning reversal from just last month when oil prices hit nearly four-year highs. The market was bracing for potential shortages once U.S. sanctions on Iran snapped back into place. Gold took a tumble, falling to its lowest level in a month. The U.S. dollar strengthened after the Fed reaffirmed its monetary tightening strategy, including higher interest rates, and that has gold on the defense. Spot gold was down 1.2% at $1,208.91 per ounce. U.S. gold futures settled down 16.5% on Friday to $1,208.60 per ounce. As for the crops and critters, the agricultural commodities, after the November crop report on Thursday, beans, corn, and wheat all traded lower. And on Friday, corn continued its downward dog, with most contracts three to four cents in the red. December corn lost one and a half cents on the week. Beans did not extend Thursday's losses, with November soybeans closing Friday at eight seventy-five and a quarter, up seven and three quarters cents. January soybeans closed at eight eighty-six and three quarters, up seven and three quarters cents a bushel. Front month soy was down fifty cents per ton. Soy oil. 40 points lower due to tightening crush margins. Wheat was down 9 to 13 cents, weather playing a factor there as snow blankets some of the newly planted crop in Kansas. December wheat at the Chicago Board of Trade closed at 502 a bushel, down 5 and 3 quarters cents. December Kansas City wheat was down 9 and 3 quarters cents, closing at 487 and a half. Total wheat exports are improving and are now only 15.5% lower than this week in 2017. Compared to the USDA export projection, they are 50% complete versus the typical 68% pace and 73% last year. At the Merck, live cattle and feeder cattle both finished Friday down 1.6%. Live cattle were down $1.97 at $114.58. Feeder cattle closed at $143.80, down $2.47. Coming up, a conversation about the equity markets this week and more with Susan Schmidt, head of U.S. equities for Aviva Investors in Chicago. 
more than 150 years, CME Group has been built with your confidence. Without it, we simply wouldn't be in business. Today, we continue to work on new and better ways to protect you and grow your confidence in the markets. After all, it's our vigilance that brings you the peace of mind you need today and in the future. CME Group. Advance with confidence. It is always a treat to have Susan Schmidt on with me on the markets. Uh, something is different this time, and that is that Susan is no longer with the company that she was with the last time we talked. Susan, welcome, and uh, tell us about the change. Well, now I am back in Chicago, my hometown, and I am head of U.S. equity for Aviva Investors. Great. Glad you're back in Chicago. Let's talk about this week. It, uh, we didn't start out, or we didn't end up a lot different than where we started out. It, it was, uh, but still, a good week with a lot of uh, interesting things happening between Monday and Friday. Let's uh, start out on Monday, uh, the day before the election. What were the uh, markets looking at, and how did they perform on Monday? The markets were just nervous going into the election, and I think that's what we felt not only last Monday, but in the prior weeks leading up to this. The markets were really nervous. It was emotional trading, and there was a lot of uncertainty. Polling hasn't been accurate, given the outcomes that were predicted for both Brexit and the recent presidential election in the U.S., I think people were afraid to trust the polls. And on uh, Wednesday, well, Tuesday, we saw pretty much the uh, the same thing that we saw on Monday, the, the hesitancy, the fear or whatever. But Wednesday, how about that? Exactly. Wednesday settled down and the uncertainty was behind us. So with the election behind us and an outcome that was largely expected. The markets understood that the Democrats probably were going to be able to take control of the House. The Senate would remain in control of the Republicans. That was an expected outcome, and that was viewed favorably by the markets, particularly because it means that the government is probably going to be slower to act. I heard Wednesday's rally described as a relief rally. Is that accurate? I think that's very accurate because there was so much emotion going into these elections. There was just a lot of concern as to what would be the outcome, how would this turn out. And no one was really sure either extreme option seemed possible, but no one was really sure what that might mean for the market. I think what's important to remember is that Democrats are Republicans. If you're in the market, you're a capitalist. And so you really want to see businesses perform well. When you get an outcome that's going to take the government a little longer to act to get things through both the House and the Senate, then it's generally perceived as positive for business because business can continue to move along without government intervention. We saw some of Wednesday's gains given back on Thursday and on Friday. Was that an indication that after that big run-up on Wednesday, the relief rally, that we were back to the level that we were comfortable at, or were some other things going on? Well, I think what we're seeing, too, is this is the last week of heavy earnings reports. So remember that we've got management teams talking about how their businesses have fared in the last quarter and what their outlook is for the year ahead. Tariffs continue to loom above them all. There's concern over rising raw material costs, the rising cost of labor. We saw some positive reports. We saw some negative reports. There's been a put and take across the market and the earnings reports this season. I think what we're seeing is the market settle in 
trying to really understand the fundamentals of the economy and what's going on. One of the interesting stocks to watch is a, a local stock, and that's Caterpillar. Up and down, up and down, and down again. One of the leaders of the the third industrials uh, downward on uh, Friday. What makes uh, Caterpillar stock so volatile? Caterpillar was one of the first companies to report earnings and talk about the increase of raw material costs. And I think Caterpillar is a good example of a lot of other heavy industrial companies that use steel as part of their raw material base. I think there were some distinct comments from CEOs of companies like that talking about the impact of tariffs and some actual quantifying of the damage and the increased costs that are going to result from those tariffs. Up until now, we've heard talk of them, but it's been more rhetoric. We haven't seen the reality of it. This is the first quarter of earnings releases where we've really seen numbers put behind the word. The narrative on Friday was that some traders are putting on the brakes because of concerns about a possible slowdown in the global economy after some reports came out of China. What are your thoughts about that? And also crude oil going down. What are your thoughts about that? Crude oil has been going down. We've seen that. Remember that we saw a big run-up in crude oil over the summer. There's been news around the oil complex. We've seen uh, sanctions against Iran virtually lifted. We have eight countries that can still trade with Iran. So there's belief that more Iranian supply is then going to hit the market. I think that's been causing some of the pressure on the price of oil as we've had increased supply. And then in addition, as you have concerns about the global economy and the need for oil, as that concern increases, the price of oil generally goes down. We're seeing that reflected right now in the oil prices, so much so that we even saw OPEC start to circulate comments about a potential production cut going forward in 2019 to help bolster and support the bottom price. The Fed did what was expected this week, and that was uh, nothing in terms of of raising rates, but there is still one more uh, increase expected before the end of the year. Is that right? That's right. There's one more meeting and one more increase expected before year-end. The Fed will meet again in December, and it's anticipated that the Fed will increase interest rates another 25 bips, a quarter of a percent. And that's been very well telegraphed by the Fed. It's understood by the market that that's going to be happening. And then the market is anticipating that the Fed will also continue to gradually raise interest rates as we extend out into 2019. What are the concerns, though, with the Fed in in raising interest rates about keeping the economy from overheating but not going too far? That's right. So we have to worry about the Fed trying to balance not too hot, not too cold, getting the porridge just the right temperature. It's really interesting that the Fed is, you know, one of our great instruments to help or slow down the economy and our economic activity. I think as we see the Fed progress, the concern is that interest rates will get too high and will start to suppress growth, particularly if we have headwinds to business like rising raw material costs, rising wages. Alternatively, the tool that the Fed has to help stimulate the economy is to lower interest rates. It's important for the Fed to get interest rates back up to a more normal level. Otherwise, when we need their help, they won't have anything to lower. Right. The 10-year Treasury has been an interesting one to watch. On Friday, it opened at 3.236% and closed at 3.184%, a gradual decline over the last couple of days. What are your thoughts about its performance? 
The 10-year Treasury has been moving really independently of how the short-term rates are, so where the Fed has been setting rates. The 10-year Treasury is very reflective of safety and fear and the balance of risk on, risk off across global markets. The U.S. Treasury is still a place to hide when you want safety, and when there's a lot of demand, that means that yields go down. So I think what we're seeing here is we see some volatility in that is people willing to take positions in stocks and riskier assets, and then the Treasury rate went up as a result of that. As people get more concerned about the global economy, potential outcomes, they're starting to get a little more nervous. We're seeing that 10-year rate come down. And the currency of the dollar strengthened some, and I saw gold went down quite a bit on Friday. The dollar has been strengthening, and that's another reason for concern among U.S. companies. If the dollar gets too strong, their goods become more expensive overseas. And so it's a fine balance and a tough line to walk. You want to have a strong dollar, but you don't want to subtract from the attractiveness of your products overseas because the dollar is too strong and therefore their price is too high. If that happens for too long, your overseas customers find an alternative rather than your product. Susan Schmidt, head of U.S. equities for Aviva Investors in Chicago. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more than 150 years, CME Group has been built with your confidence. Without it, we simply wouldn't be in business. Today, we continue to work on new and better ways to protect you and grow your confidence in the markets. After all, it's our vigilance that brings you the peace of mind you need today and in the future. CME Group. Advance with confidence. And welcome back to The Markets, sponsored by the CME Group. I'm Steve Alexander, subbing for Orion Samuelson this week. And Big O and Max Armstrong were at the 75th convention of the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Not only did they get to hobnob with other farm broadcasters from across the country, they talked to a lot of producers and organizations and decision makers. And, well, let's listen in. Twelve consecutive years of record sales. Quite a track record. We enjoyed being with the Angus folks there, Orion. By the way, there was a video clip of you asking some very serious questions early in the day for really? CAB. So maybe it was those uh, journalist questions that helped put them on the straight path. I'll take credit. <laughs> Ray Brownfield joins us here. It's good to see you this weekend, Ray, to talk a little bit about the farmland market and what's going on with producers. Land is still changing hands, isn't it, in some places? It is. We still have, a, I think, a pretty active market. Um, this time of year, we see more properties come on the market, which is usual. But uh, it's not overwhelming, and there's still good demand for good quality. Let me ask you about this demand from outside of agriculture. There's so much of a buzz about these corporations building big headquarters. The, the search is on to get these companies to come into a community, and when they plop them down... They bring a lot of jobs, they take a lot of land out of production, they buy land from someone. That's happening and that's driving up prices in certain individual situations, correct? It has. Uh, across the border into Wisconsin, it was seen. We saw Foxconn come in and spend tremendous amounts of money 
per acre, however, that influences just that local area. What does influence if those people, and they do have 1031 exchange money, then they will go to another area and try to replace that. And they have the money and the cash to do that, so therefore that creates a more competitive market where they go as well. So that, that can be the case. So with the tax law, they can go out 150 miles, 200 miles, whatever. That will in, in, in turn support the farmland market where they buy. They can go anywhere as long as it's income-producing real estate. So, yeah. We always focused on housing and, and big corporations. Some places we have these massive logistics warehouses uh, around Chicago, for example. And that's... Ha- that has to, again, have an individual local impact. It does. Uh, the market is, when you see a million square feet warehouse going on I-55 out here, that's a lot of land to come into the process. And it does create those particular opportunities, but it's a very local opportunity, as I say. It doesn't impact land that far out. And it's just internally in that particular area within probably a 5 to 10 mile radius, if that. Ray, I'm going to let you answer a question I received uh, by email a couple of weeks ago from a farmer thinking of selling his farm. And his question to me, which I haven't answered, is the farmland boom over? (laughs) That's a really good question. You know, I think there's pressure on the market because of numbers of things that would indicate that we're not going up. Uh, There may be some cases where you'll hear of a strong market in a very area where two guys got together and wanted that ground so bad they paid a big price. But overall, I think we're going to see continued pressure until the commodity market has come back on a sustainable basis. Now, is a boom here? It's still a lot better than it was even 10 years ago. So you got to look at it on a total picture. But overall, I'd say there, there is not such thing as a boom as we knew it in 2013. And a quick question, who's buying the farms, the neighbor or investors? I Still, it's mostly uh, local farmers uh, slash investors, local folks perhaps. The institutional buyers are there, but they're extremely particular on what they can achieve in the way of their performance that they have to have. What about cash rent value as we go into the uh, end of the year? You know, we had thought earlier on in the growing season that it might be more challenging to negotiate leases for 2019, basically, is what we're going into. But Yields in Illinois particularly have been pretty good. And with the marketing assistance program that we're getting from the federal government on soybeans at, uh, what, 87.5 cents a bushel times even 60 or 70 bushels, if that's in, that's that's another added benefit that I think we, we appreciate. We don't like to take handouts, but we'll take it. Uh, overall, um, it hasn't been bad at all. People are understanding that we can remain about the same for another year. I would say this time next year, if things don't straighten out from the tariff viewpoint and from the commodity issues and costs of doing business, it could be more challenging. But for this time, right, everything's gone pretty well. I think people do a job of marketing their grain back in May for harvest delivery or further out. And so overall, uh, we're feeling pretty good about it. How important is crop insurance? Very, very important. I hope in a new program that it does go through as we hope it does. And we need that. We need that security blanket. We really do. The farm bill does matter once again, doesn't it? I mean, there were a couple of couple of farm bills there. Maybe we weren't paying quite as close attention, but it really does matter because of that limited but important safety net. Absolutely so. I don't think anybody wants to take handouts, but we may need that at time, and it's good to have. Your farmland manager hat on for just a moment here. As you're sitting down with the growers and as you're sitting down with outside investors who are certainly a, an important player here as you 
work with farmers, uh, farming the ground of absentee owners. What are some of the most important things you would say to farmers at this stage? As to working with an investor? Right. Kind of farmland manager. Yeah, I would say make sure that you're continuing to work with good communications back and forth. That's so important to know what's going on out there on both sides of the coin. Use the best technology, the technology you can. Timeliness of operation is so important to all of us. And I would say this, you can get too big. We do see in this weather window from time to time, people get really stretched because it's just it's the same window weather whether you're 1,000 acres or 10,000 acres. So be careful about that as to how you're getting the job done. And certainly conservation practices, the tillage, all those things are so important to us for the long pull because this land should go on and on well beyond us. So that's our concern to maintain it and improve it. So don't get so big you slop the job around, I guess, uh, so to speak. Farmland managers, outside investors, still concerned about the quality of job being done by that land. Absolutely. And a number of our landowners now are, when we have a change due to retirement, they want us to bring in younger farmers, which I think is great. So maybe son or or daughter or whomever's in with dad or grandpa, I think that's a wonderful thing to see us sustain agriculture. Good to see you again, sir. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Ray Brownfield, Land Pro LLC, is located in Oswego, Illinois. Thank you, Max and Orion. I'm sure our broadcasting legends had a good time in Kansas City, no doubt partaking of some of those famous Kansas City steaks and barbecue. Oh, boy. Let's continue the conversation about agriculture, specifically soybeans. Recently, the EPA announced it is extending the registration for dicamba for two more years for over-the-top use to control weeds and fields of cotton and soybean plants that are genetically engineered to resist dicamba. The extension includes new label updates that place additional restrictions on how dicamba is used because there have been problems with drift. Dr. Bob Hartzler is a professor of agronomy and an extension weed specialist at Iowa State University and talks about these new rules. Yeah, so they have several changes. Um, Unfortunately, in my opinion, most of them really don't address one of the big issues, and that is the potential for volatility. And and volatility is associated with products that have a relatively high vapor pressure so that after the herbicide lands on the target, uh, it can evaporate and then move off the field. And, And so why this is so difficult to manage is the applicator can do everything correct during their application to minimize off-target movement. But if the conditions favor volatility, uh, they can still have problems. And uh, what EPA chose to do was slightly restrict um, the application window to try to minimize those late-season applications with higher temperatures. But essentially what they did was put a restriction for limiting applications in soybeans until 45 days after planting. The majority of applications are already made within 45 days after planting. They did shorten the growth stage restriction. So previously, the dicamba could be applied up to and including the R1 stage of soybeans. So that would be when the soybeans first start flowering. Now the restriction is the dicamp has to be applied prior to the R1 stage, 
but that's only a three or four day difference. So in my mind, it's pretty insignificant. So it's those late applications that have the risk of off-target movement, and the new restrictions don't address that. It's that arbitrary 45-day window that the EPA has dictated that bothers Dr. Hartzler the most, it seems, because if it's a late planting year, that 45-day window could extend into weather potentially too warm to apply dicamba. Right. So if we had a perfect spring and everybody got their beans planted by the second week of May, then I think that 45 days would be beneficial. But if you look at the USDA numbers for planting progress here in Iowa, by May 15th, we're only at 51% of soybeans planted. So that means half the beans are being planted at a date where um, applications would be legal into uh, July. And those are the applications where we have risk. You know, I was looking for something that would restrict the applications late in the season. And they've made some, I guess I would call them window dressing. It it makes it look like they've done something. But in my opinion, it's not, they're not dealing with um, the problems. They did uh, further restrict the time of day that the herbicide can be applied. So in 2018, um, they limited applications to between sunrise and sunset. Now um, they shorten that window by three hours. So it has to be within, or you can't apply it until an hour after sunrise and two hours before sunset. The purpose of that is to reduce the likelihood of spraying during temperature inversions that traps the spray droplets um, near the ground and they can uh, just move across the uh, the landscape. And, and there's no doubt that growers spraying during inversions has been an issue. Of the roughly 90 million acres of soybeans planted in the U.S. this past year, between 40 and 50 million acres were planted with the Extend soybean seed. It was developed by Monsanto, which is now part of Bayer. These seeds allow growers to spray dicamba and glyphosate post-emergence over the top of the crop. Drift, or off-target movement, as it's properly called, resulted in thousands of complaints of damage to non-soybean acres, including specialty crops and trees. Dr. Bob Hartzler expects the extend acres and the potential damage to grow. That That is going to continue to increase, um, partially because, you know, the companies that control the bulk of the soybean seed market are associated with Monsanto slash Bayer, and so the only beans they're offering uh, are the extend beans. So, so it's going to continue to increase. Some people say, well, that will take care of this off-target movement, and that will reduce the risk of damaging soybeans. Uh, but what has me concerned are there is that there are other plants in the landscape that are um, extremely important, and uh, we may not damage soybeans in the future if they're all, or nearly all of them are extend soybeans, but we will be damaging trees and uh, other plants in the landscape. I hate to say it, but, you know, if it was only soybeans we were damaging, I think agriculture could work it out. 
I don't like that approach, that attitude, but it would be, you know, easier to manage. Perhaps you could say if it was just soybeans that were at risk, the trees, um, that's what really has me concerned. And then Arkansas and Tennessee, the boot hill of Missouri, they're seeing a significant damage to trees in the landscape that are being damaged by dicamba. And, you know, typically with these herbicides, you know, one year of damage to a tree is not going to threaten the health of that plant. But if we continue to drift on these trees every year, um, it's going to be devastating to the landscape and the environment. And I just don't think that's acceptable. Dr. Bob Hartzler, a weed expert at Iowa State University. Well, as we wrap up the markets for this week, sponsored by the CME Group, by the way, let's look ahead at next week. And we can expect that investors will continue to have their eyes open to any signs that the economic cycle is peaking, while the lower oil prices seem mostly driven by a surge in supply, not a drop in demand. There are some worrisome signs coming out of China. Data there... And, of course, data coming from China is always a little suspect. But the data shows softer producer price gains, weak car sales, and a disappointing outlook for a top online travel company, all of which helped reignite the lingering concerns about the world's number two economy, the health of that economy. The weak Chinese data comes as the U.S. and China continue to engage in a trade Well, SPAT, I guess, that some people are calling it, that's been going on for most of the year. The two countries have slapped tariffs on billions of dollars worth of each other's goods as the U.S. seeks a better trade deal with China. And White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro kind of soured things on uh, Friday about possible optimism of a deal between the two countries. He said, if there is a deal, if and when there is a deal, it will be on President Trump's terms, not on Wall Street's terms. Navarro's comments come ahead of a meeting between Trump and the Chinese president at the upcoming G20 summit. Time's up. That's the markets, sponsored by the CME Group. For Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong, I'm Steve Alexander. <laughs>